If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, this is Denise Crosby from the original Pet Cemetery and Star Trek The Next Generation. And you're listening to the Don't Go Out There horror movie podcast. Ooh, scary. In a world where zombies, ghosts, serial killers, and vampires all exist. It's Nico, Brian, Mike, and Dustin, and they are all that stand between you and the films that could end the world. Welcome to the Don't Go Out There Horror Movie Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Don't Go Out There Horror Movie Review Podcast. Just want to thank all our fans and listeners. Really appreciate all the support. You guys are awesome. Uh, before we get into tonight's film, we just want to give a quick shout-out to our website, don'tgooutthere.com. Uh can't praise Brian enough for the great job he's done on the website. It looks amazing. Uh, if you want to list all of our episodes and interviews, we have those tabs available from our very first episode to the weekly release. Uh, check out our website. We've also done some incredible interviews in the past. Check out our interviews tab. Uh, Horror Legends. Go check them out. It's a lot easier to find than like Apple and Spotify. Uh, we have a store. We have some new t-shirts, new apparel. Check that out as well. Make a great Christmas gift, even though it's going to be hella late if you order right now. But, hey, do it anyways. We all love gifts. And we also have Shan's Etsy page attached as well. She has some amazing tumblers. Check those out. Uh, and I want to give a shout-out to our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Like us, subscribe us, follow us, all that good stuff. We've got so many comments tonight for tonight's episode, and I'm super excited about that. Uh, I love interacting with our fans and meeting new people. And the last thing I'm going to shout-out on our website is our Patreon called Blood Donors. We have the traditional monthly recurring kind. It takes a big burden off us, and we really appreciate your monetary support. Uh, none of that goes into our pocket. It just goes back into the podcast to help make this the best listening experience possible. And we also have a one-time donation. If you're a big fan of a movie and you want us to review it, we have that tier available as well. Uh, tonight is my pick for Overdue Month. I chose uh, Pet Cemetery. Uh a movie that is very nostalgic for me, and that's why I picked it. I was torn between a couple other movies, and I'll go ahead and name them, Carrie and Sleepaway Camp. Those are the other two I was kind of torn between, but I kind of felt like Sleepaway Camp in December was kind of a terrible time to review Sleepaway Camp. So I just rolled with uh, Pet Cemetery just because this movie is really nostalgic. Uh, it's a movie I've had on my list for a long time. It's a movie I've, I've picked for some months but changed at the last minute and made Brian make a whole new graphic and ruined his whole day. So I figured I might as well try and do it now. Uh, honestly, I rewatched this movie a couple weeks ago with my mom at her house. And I was like, eh, 
didn't really hold up too well. But, you know, I rewatched it again for the show and doing my notes. I was like, even though this movie's not perfect, it still is special to me. So I'll just leave it at that. It's special to me. It has flaws, but I still like the movie and think it's good. All right, Brian, you want to go ahead and go next to your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I didn't really like it all that much. You know, if we go back a few episodes, it's very known that I had admitted to never see this movie ever. Um, it's just one of those that never really sparked my interest enough to sit down and watch it, if I'm being honest, especially after seeing the remake uh, first. So unlike Nico, there's no real nostalgic pull for me. Uh, now, just because I didn't really like it all that much doesn't mean I don't think it, it did a ton of stuff very well. Uh, it definitely did. Um, I think that, and, you know, I think it, I think it also missed on a lot, you know, in, in comparison, the remake I felt did some different stuff very well, but some bad, but, you know, I, I think we have a question about, you know, about that later. So I'll save it. But now something I think this movie gets absolutely right is the tone of King's original book. Like it gets across that morbid atmosphere that I personally don't feel like the remake was able to do. Uh, and, and really, that's that's my favorite part about this movie. Um, as a father, this movie makes me feel something and, and allows me to empathize and put myself, you know, in Lewis's shoes, some some uh, scenes. And and I give a movie, as you'll see with my score, a ton of credit for being able to do that to me. Um, I love Fred Gwynn. You know, he's his character is my, my favorite in here. And after I watched it, you know, I walked around going, Lewis, you don't want to do that now, Lewis. Um, now this, this prompted me to do a lot of research on the book too. And, and, uh, I didn't read it all the way through, but it did make me appreciate what this movie was trying to do. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe that's the wrong words. I think it made me appreciate the story more, I guess, since both of them were, were mostly written by Stephen King, as far as the screenplay goes. Uh, but because of the medium, I, I, I feel like it did sell us short on a lot of things. So yeah, I guess that's my thoughts. Sporadic, caffeine induced, unlike King's, who was probably cocaine or, or acid induced. Yeah, this movie's okay. You know, it's kind of just okay. I don't think it's bad. I think he, I think a lot of the horror aspects age well, which you get a lot with Stephen King movies that are older. Like, you know, some of the stuff that may be like cheesy and campy in other movies, like like you mentioned at the top of the show, like a sleep, like a sleepaway camp that, you know, maybe some of that cheese and those effects and all that stuff looks bad. You don't really get that in a lot of these Stephen King adaptations to me. And so this is another example of that. So look, there's some really good horror stuff here. Uh, you know, like you said, the tone so close to the book, shout out to Miss Joyce, seventh grade, letting us read pet cemetery as a seventh grader, even though the administration told her she could not. So thanks for risking your job for letting us read Pet Cemetery. Um, so I've read Pet Cemetery. It's been a long time, but it, you know, it is close to the book. And the reason it's so close is because Stephen King wrote the screenplay. So, or the, or the initial screenplay. So it's about as close as a, of a Stephen King adaptation as there is to the source material. That's not it, which it, it you know, it, it is pretty close as well. But anyway, um, some of the acting is really good here. You know, you mentioned Fred Gwynn, Herman Munster, uh, he's great here. I think he plays his character so well. He's he's the nice man next door, but there's something about him. There's just something I can't quite put my finger on. What it's not creepy, but there's just something about him that makes you kind of question, you know, not his motives, but like who he is. What you know, what is there's more to this guy, and I, I like the way he plays the character. And obviously, his his voice in this movie's been made fun of to death. That sometimes dead is better. Is a whole joke on South Park. It's one of the better episodes they've ever done. So, like, 
that you know that's classic there's a lot of classic stuff miko hughes i think as a little kid that's a really good job being this character of gage like to be that young and to be able to do some of the stuff he's doing in this movie i thought was really good um now there's moments in this movie where i just think it drags it just drags and drags it's not building suspense like i would hope for in a movie like this with stevie king i just kind of feel like there's some flat areas or like the, the movie's an hour and 43 minutes. You feel it. You feel the run, the runtime by the end. Um, at least I did, which I know that's a shocker to no one. But I really actually did this time. I'm not just whining to whine. Uh, but some of the other acting is fine. I think there's, you know, a few good kills here at the end. Uh, and I do think having a killer three-year-old is a fun, you know, spoiler alert, by the way. If you've never seen it, that's your fault. Uh I think having a killer three-year-old is interesting. Uh, I think both child actors actually do a good job of playing their characters at that age. So I'll shut up now. I'm ramming. I like this movie. I just don't know how often I'm going to rewatch this. This is only my third time ever seeing it. Like I've only watched it two other times and once was about half or started halfway through. So uh, it's enjoyable for what it is. I just, it's not one of, it's not one of my personal favorite Stephen King movies. And no, it's not Christine. It is Christine. No, it's not. It's it. Um, yeah, no, it is it. Christine. That's what I said. Uh, so hey, this Bob, movie, sorry, my boss. This, <laughs> this movie has a lot of uh, nostalgia for me because I, I'm pretty sure if I actually were to sit down and really rack my brain and try to unscramble the CTE and think about what the first horror movie I can remember is, it might be this one. Um, this movie, The Children of the Corn, uh, the, the original one there, um, probably Maximum Overdrive. The, like there's just a handful of movies I can remember. Hellraiser, way too young for that. But uh, there's just a handful of movies I can remember watching with my dad when I was a little kid. And uh, so this one has just always been very nostalgic for me. Also, Fred Gwynn, very nostalgic because I also grew up watching the Monsters. Sidebar, if you haven't watched the new Monsters movie by Rob Zombie, I recommend it. It's a fun little family movie, which is a, definitely a change of pace from uh, Rob Zombie's uh, typical movies. But anyway, um do I think this movie's perfect? No, absolutely not. I've got things that I would change, and I'll, I'll get into that with the scene by scene. Like, I think that you could just change certain aspects of it and make this such a better movie. Um, I haven't seen the remake or the reboot, whichever way you want to paint that one, but I haven't seen it. I imagine that they get a lot of it right. But, Mike, what you were talking about with the runtime, uh, how it, it kind of drags, I, I agree. I think that this could easily be a 90-minute movie, and they get all the necessary things covered. But I think that the problem with that is anytime that it's based off of, off of a novel and the writer is so heavily involved in the direction of the movie, that's the reason. Like, he's going to want, oh, you can't cut that. Like, I put that in the book for a reason, you know. So right. I, I right. feel like he, yeah. he tried to make a, uh, a book. Uh, it's like a visual book instead of a movie at points is what it feels like. And certain aspects, it just doesn't really work the way that uh, he intended. Who am I to question Stephen King? I mean, he's obviously much more successful than I'll ever be, but uh, it just it doesn't really age as well um, because of it. But uh, overall, I mean, I do think it's it's a very effective horror movie. It's it's impressionable. Like it, it's a movie that I think sticks with you, and especially at the time, like 1989. Um, I saw this movie when I was I don't know I was probably under the age of six or so. So um, early 90s is when I saw it, and I've seen it countless times just because it's one of those that i grew up on and uh, i do think it's it's a pretty good movie overall so um 
Glad you picked it, Nico. Also, you made a great point, Dustin, just as far as like how close Stephen King was to this screenplay. Like, sometimes that's not always a good thing when you're adapting a book. Like, if you look at The Shining, you know, he had nothing to do with that, and he hates that movie. But that's one of the, you know, the more classic, uh, you know, adaptations of his books. You know, and that's why J.K. Rowling, on set of all the Harry Potter movies, but did not write the screenplay because she's like, if you if you're asking my opinion, I would put everything in the movie. That's why I put it in the book. So someone right. else needs to take my book and adapt it to a movie format. I'm not a screenplay writer. So and I'm not like who, who the hell might have doubt Stephen King. I just kind of think like you said, Brian, like maybe take some of the dragging stuff out and put some of the stuff they left out in. And it's not like a ton of, of like big stuff, but I do feel like there's stuff in that book you could have maybe put in there kind of not having such a slow pace. And I don't mind a slow burn, but this movie's a really slow burn to me. Well, I think we all can agree that um, we wish that it was a Stanley Kubrick movie, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We all agree that. <laughs> she only, right. the director of this movie only directed like the, the really bad sequel, which is Pet Cemetery 2, which is a god-awful movie, and Halloween Town 2. So she really hadn't done a whole lot more like after Pet Cemetery. All right, guys, any more opening thoughts before you just jump into the scene by scene? All right, let's do it. The film starts with title card and opening credits. We see crosses where pets were buried as we get narration of people who speak on their pets. A spooky tune plays as we see close-ups of the pet tombstones. We see an overhead shot of the burial site. It's called the Pet Cemetery. We see a semi flying down the road as a station wagon pulls into a driveway. Ellie loves a new place as she runs to the tire swing. Rachel says it's gorgeous. Rachel gets Gage out of his car seat and Ellie finds a path and the rope on the swing breaks. She cries out and it hurts as they run to her. Gage waves and walks towards the road as Judd scoops him up. The Creeds thank him and they introduce themselves. He's a neighbor. He warns them to watch out for that road. Rachel asks Judd about the path. He says it's a good story. I'll take you, after, I'll take you there after you get settled in. Judd is happy to have neighbors again. Rachel checks on the kids sleeping as Lewis looks at the path outside. He's scared by church in the tree. Another semi flies by and Lewis walks over to Judd's to have a beer. Judd tells him that's a mean road and Judd tells him that the path leads to Pet Cemetery. It's that damn road. Kills a lot of animals. Judd takes the family down the path to the Pet Cemetery. Ellie runs in and Judd says you can't plant anything but corpses here. Rachel is angry saying this place is built on broken hearted children. Judd shows Ellie where he buried his dog back in 1924, and he asks if she knows what a graveyard is. It's where the dead speak. It's a place to rest. Back home, Ellie asks her dad, what if Church dies? Lewis explains that Church might be alive until she's in high school. Ellie asks who makes the rules. That's my cat, not God's cat, as she cries in his arms. Rachel tucks her and Church into bed. Gage throws food at Ellie. She's scared school won't be like Chicago, and she wants to go home. She blurts out she doesn't want Church's nuts cut, and they all laugh. Lewis tells Rachel if anything does happen to Church, she explains it to Ellie. He leaves for work now. Lewis thanks Mi Missy for the phrase, and he asks about her bellyache. He offers to take a look, but she walks off. Rachel walks out, and they share a kiss. Have a great first day, she tells him. We now see students carrying a student inside who was hit by a truck. His brain is exposed from the wound. They treat him, and Lewis says to call an ambulance. Lewis closes Victor's eyes, and Victor grabs his shoulder and says, The soul of a man's heart is stonier, Lewis. I'll come to you. 
He asked how he knew his name as Victor falls back dying. Nighttime now, we see Lewis in bed, and he wakes up when he hears a crash. He opens his eyes. It's Victor who says, we got places to go, Doc. Victor is bedside. Come on, Doc. Don't make me tell you twice. Victor walks out, and Lewis follows. Why are you here? I want to help you because you tried to help me. Lewis follows him to the path. I don't like this dream. Who said you were dreaming? This is the place where the dead speak. Do not go on to the place where the dead walk, Victor says, as he points to a place in the woods that lights up. That barrier is not, is not meant to be crossed. The ground beyond is sour. Lewis wakes up in bed thinking it was all just a dream until he sees his dirty feet under the blanket. And then he puts all the sheets in the laundry. All right, Brian, that's the opening set of scenes I got. What'd you think? Uh, so speaking of things that could have been cut right off the bat, this long ass opening credits. Um, and as far as that goes too, I think it would have been cool to maybe show some like flashback of kids burying their pets. I mean, I know they kind of tried to get that across with the voiceovers, but showing it, I think would have really helped with like kind of showing the history of this place. Um, you know, and perhaps having this, this camera pan across the cemetery, be at night with maybe some smoke or, or at least some dusk, maybe, uh, you know, would have improved it some for me. Um, Otherwise, I just don't think it had the intended effect that they wanted, really, especially for our first really introduction to the actual pet cemetery. Um, <clears throat> few cast things. You know, I know friend of the show, Denise Crosby, is known for this movie, but my first introduction to her is really all I've ever known her as, and that's Nerd Alert, Tasha R from Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, you know, a few other things. You know, I'm not the biggest fan of her character in this movie, but Ellie Creed was, was actually played by twins, Blaze and Bo Bertahal. Uh, probably best known for Ghost Rider, not Ghost Rider, uh, in the early 90s. I don't know if any of y'all ever watched that show. It was during the Hey Dude, Say by the Bell years for me. But, um, you know, we brought up Miko Hughes in his debut. Dude does such a good job for being as old as he was here. Um, part of why I said it affects me later on, you know, kid looks just like my son at that age. Blonde hair, blue eyes, demon, hell-infested instinct later in life. They were just exactly the same. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm kidding. Liam, you better not be listening to the show. But uh, here's a complaint of mine. The relationship between Rachel and Lois doesn't seem real at all. Like, I, I don't know if it's if it's the not-so-great acting we get from Dale Midkiff or, or the screenplay or the lack of time for development. I don't know. But they don't seem like husband and wife. They play almost like they just started dating. You know, and that's his stepkids almost. I mean, I don't know. It just doesn't feel realistic to me. Uh, Lewis relationship, you know, with Judd actually feels more genuine than, uh, than Rachel's, um, you know, and this is something I feel like the remake actually got right and did better. I think, but like I said, we'll talk about that later. Um, plus they're pretty terrible parents. I mean, let's be honest, you know, no mother would leave their barely able to walk kid for, you know, a little scratch from the, from the tire. It's just super hokey, you know, here in this one. Um, if man fuck them kids was a movie, it'd probably be this one. And, uh, the last thing I'll say, and I'll shut up, shout out to David Anderson and his team in the makeup department. Um, Victor, Victor Pascal's head wound looks fucking fantastic. Um, David Anderson would go on to do Cabin in the Fucking Woods makeup, Men in Black, A New Nightmare, ton of other stuff. Um, he's won two Oscars for his amazing work. And if his name sounds familiar, it's because, yep, that's Heather Camp's husband. Um, and who would star with Heather in New Nightmare? That's right, Miko Hughes. There's your little connection there. Wow, this is this is David Arquette all over again. Let's see if we can start playing the uh, <laughs> start playing the game with Miko Hughes. I bet we good every week. Uh, okay, now well, I'm you gonna... see he was in Full House, and then oh, sorry, 
If you got one, buddy, <laughs> if you got one, I'll, I'll always, I love the David Arquette stuff. I, the more you do it, man, I love it. Anyway, um, okay, so I'm going to push back a little bit there, Brian, because I feel like in the 80s, I don't know, you were raised in the 80s, old man. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. You raised in the 90s. Just kidding. Just kidding, buddy. All right. But I feel like in the 80s, you know, parents just kind of let their children do whatever the hell they wanted, man. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like running. Around, I don't know. Everyone I've talked to, that's what they say. Like, hey, we we just ran down the street for hours. That's what they said. I'm just telling you. I don't know, man. I just, I feel like you, I don't know. I just, it felt I didn't hokey. say they were right. I didn't say, well, I don't really like the fact that they do it twice in the same movie. They kind of give you the same scare, except one time they actually do it. So, uh, maybe that's supposed to be foreshadowing. I don't know. Um, this this setup feels very familiar, and I guess it's because I've seen this movie before. But like, I feel like I've seen this same kind of setup in other movies. Family moves to new house. New house feels a little weird, a little spooky. New new neighbor feels a little creepy. You know, there's something up here in this new town that they live in. Uh, so I feel like I've seen this setup before. Uh, not that that's a bad thing, but I feel like there's a reason that trope exists. And this movie kind of carries that on. Uh, you're right, though. I, I feel like this marriage does not have a very well-established connection. And we find out later that they, the in-laws hate him. I mean, who hates a doctor? <laughs> For God's sakes. I mean, your daughter marries a doctor and you hate him? What the hell's wrong with that? Anyway, um, but I do think these child actors do a great job of playing kids. Like, they feel like kids. Uh, you know, the sm- you know smart kids, but they feel like kids. Nonetheless, you already mentioned uh, Miko Hughes. You mentioned the twins. I think they do a great job, man, at that age to be able to kind of talk and communicate the way that they do those lines, the way they deliver them, I feel like is really good. Uh, I hate cats. So the fact that they go to this extreme, no offense to people who love cats, that's all, that's all well and good, no problem with you. But I don't like cats. And the fact that they go to hell – Hell and back to, to, to make sure this cat is okay. I'm kind of like, eh, that dumbass cat runs out in the road, runs out in the road, bro. I don't know what to tell you. It's not, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but again, I do like the setup that we have here. I, I keep going back to the book again. It's been a long time since I've read it, but this is all pretty much beat by beat. This part of it, like it's all, it's pretty much paint by numbers for the moment, at least in this first set of scenes. So I have no problem with it. I'm, I'm, I'm entertained in the story. I want to know more about the pet cemetery. Like I want to know what's down the path. I want to know more about the pet cemetery and why, it, why it's there. It's so weird that they decided to make this pet cemetery. Obviously we find out later, but still uh, great opening set of scenes. Fred Gwynn uh, shines really, really well. It's really hard for me. He's, he's either Herman Munster or he's the judge for my cousin Vinny, which he is also that. So that's where my head goes with him. But uh, yeah, that's all I got. I thought that this is a good, a good opening set of scenes. I said great earlier. I meant to say good. All right. So uh, in this opening set of scenes, we get something that we don't see nearly enough in horror movies, but they're actually fucking terrifying. And that's a skunk. I thought that was a cool. That was a nice, cho- nice choice. We don't get enough skunks. But anyway. Um, I think it's a, you know, they did a good job with the design and the layout of the pet cemetery. Like that looks creepy as shit. And it just looks like, uh, it, it, you know, it got, got across the point that they were trying to make with how it looked. I thought that was well, um, 
This is a nice ass house that he buys. I have a question though. What do you think? Did he buy this house without showing his wife first? Like that's a bold choice. They, she they get out of the car and he asks her like, "What do you think?" Like, what the fuck kind of financial decisions you making without your wife being in the loop, bucko? That's um, what you get for you're a doctor, my man. I guess. It's red they flag act like number they one. They don't even though. know each other, though. I mean, like he acts yeah. like uh, yeah, act like they're buddies. And look what I bought you. <laughs> yeah. So it's like uh, you know you popped out a couple kids. Mine here's a house up in the fucking middle of nowhere. Um, but you know one of the big issues I have, I do appreciate the fact that they establish it very on very very early on with the trucks. But why are trucks haul assing down that road? Like my first order of business before I got my boxes unpacked would be putting some fucking speed bumps in the road if I've got two small children. But I think it's great foreshadowing and a great job of establishing that very early on. Like you got multiple trucks very early in, in this uh, early going here. So that was well done. And, you know, Gage almost getting hit by one is great foreshadowing there. So, but I agree. That's bad parenting. This, this movie features the worst parenting of any movie that we've featured so far or uh, that we've covered so far. And I don't think that's up for debate. Like that's not even in question, but um, we get Fred Gwynn. I love Fred Gwynn. Such a huge part of my childhood. Like I mentioned with this movie being one of the first horror movies I've seen. And then, uh, you know, the monsters and then what the fuck is up with Missy? Like that's a strange character to me. I don't like her character at all because they don't establish her at all. It's just like, Boom, she's dropped into our laps. Here she is. Yep. And then she just starts yep. telling us her fucking life story about I'll yep. never get married. Maybe, I, you know, I should have married a doctor. But maybe my stomach wouldn't hurt me so bad. You know, Missy, if you got the shits, then just say that. But, like, we don't need – I don't really care. I. It was, she's a very pointless character. They didn't do a good job of making me care that she was having gastro problems. I, just, I don't give a fuck. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And we get more good foreshadowing of the guy being hit by a truck, you know, and getting uh, wheeled into the hospital. They're establishing that it does happen kind of frequently that, um, you know, people are going to get hit by trucks in this world. But his whole storyline is kind of unnecessary to me. Like one of the major tweaks that I would make to this movie is I wouldn't have Pascal or Pascal yep. or whatever you want to call him. I wouldn't I have would him at all. I don't think it's completely. necessary. Like we already know that there's a pet cemetery. So we don't need a ghost trying to warn people and tell them about it. Like they could have just left it that there's a pet store, uh, pet cemetery, and then have Judd tell the story of the people try to bring their pets back and and uh, you know the flashback we get with the with the kid that was buried there. Like to me, that's the direction they should have went to make this so much better. Is cut out the over the top supernatural stuff. And just go with this is a Indian burial ground. The grounds are soured. Trust me when I tell you, don't bury anything in that. And then let the tragedy tragedy strike, and let them find out the hard way. It just it, it cuts the fluff and it makes it so much. It just streamlines the action, and we don't need this other stuff. So, um, but for what it is, it, it's a it's an okay opening set of scenes. Pretty good because we get introduced to all these characters, and you know I I like them. I, I like I like that I like Lewis a lot and I like Judd a lot. Um, the kids are fine. Don't really care about the wife and definitely don't care about the maid. But that's that's a pretty good percentage of characters I care about and don't. Hey, there there is a uh, a fun little Stephen King fact that happens in this set of scenes. Apparently, when Victor's you know being carried into the clinic after being hit by the truck, there's a rabies poster on the uh, on the wall it has a picture mm. of Cujo. 
Yeah. I saw that. that that's pretty cool, too. Um, it's like the uh, Stephen King and the Multiverse of Madness. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> uh, I know you, I know one of you have already said it, but Rachel is completely unlikable in this opening set of scenes. Like, just, I, I, I would, man, she basically said, come on, say it with your chest when he's telling, or when she's telling him to, you know, say that he promises. Man, don't put me in a position like that. Ah, oh, it stormed out of the house. Sorry. Very unlikable. Not, like you said, uh, Brian, not a great relationship there. That's not, that's not how I want to be introduced to these people. All right, Lewis is at work now and throws Victor's file away. He's home now playing with Gage, as Rachel says it's not right him not going to Thanksgiving with her. He says her dad will never consider him family. Judd calls Lewis and tells him he has a dead cat in his yard. He thinks, he thinks it's Ellie's. Lewis says, that's church, all right. And Judd says, at least he didn't suffer. Lewis puts the carcass in the trash bag, and he asks if he's going to tell Ellie. Judd says maybe there's a better way. The place we're going to is on the other side of that. The two men climb over this pile of limbs. Don't look down. Don't stop, he tells Lewis. A limb Lewis steps on snaps, and he tumbles down, and Judd helps him up. They keep hiking. Lewis asks, what's that, when they hear a bunch of loons crying out? They climb up some rocks, and Judd means, and Judd means it. They're almost there. Judd brings him to the Micmac Indian Burial Ground. He wants Lewis to bury Church there. I'd help you, but you got to do it yourself. Each buries its own. It's nighttime now as Lewis finally gets Church buried. They make it back to the house, and Lewis runs to the phone when he hears it ringing. Too late, no one's there. Judd tells him not one word about what we did tonight. Judd tells him this was a secret thing. Judd repeats what Victor said, and Lewis is visibly spooked. Lewis calls Ellie, and they chat, and she asks about Church. He tells to, he talks to Gage now. Hi, Daddy, I love you. But Lewis doesn't reply. Lewis is raking leaves and heads back to the garage where he sees Church with bright green eyes. Scares the shit out of him. He taps a food bowl and Church comes to eat. I don't believe this. He picks Church up and investigates until he's swatted in the face. Lewis is at Judd's now and he says, I feel like I'm going crazy. Judd tells him the story of that place and how his dog died. The rag man took him there. Judd's mother cries out saying, Spot smells like the ground he came from. I did it because your daughter ain't ready for that pet to die. Has anyone ever buried a person up there? Lewis asks as Judd loses it, knocking over the beer bottles. Christ, no. Who would? Lewis makes himself a bath. He tries to relax until Church throws a dead rat in the tub. He pushes Church to the floor and lets it out the bathroom. The family is back as Lewis greets them off the plane. Ellie asks if Church is okay. She dreamed he got ran over by a car, and you and Judd buried him in the pet cemetery. Back home, Ellie says Church smells bad, and she wants to get him cleaned. Missy, the house cleaner, writes a suicide note, and she walks into the cellar to hang herself. We're at her funeral as Stephen King makes a cameo as the preacher. Judd asks if Rachel is sick. She has the flu. Judd questions why God took Missy and asks him about the cat. Back home from the funeral and Ellie turns the TV off. She asks if Missy went to heaven. Rachel listens on to the conversation. He says everyone has different beliefs. She asks his beliefs and says, I think we go on. I have faith in that. She kisses him as we see Rachel crying in the kitchen. All right, Brian, that's the next set of scenes I got. What do you think? So right off the bat, are those scrubs or pajamas that Lois is sleeping in? Like, is my guy, like, sleeping in his scrubs so he doesn't have to change if he's called in the middle of the night? I don't know. Uh, but something I, I wanted to touch on in the last set of scenes is how Victor talks about the ground being, quote, sour. Um, this is explained a lot more in the book. Basically, that there's an ancient demon wendigo creature picture the movie antlers by the way listen to that review and interview jeremy t thomas on go uh 
but this Wendigo feeds off of the dead that's buried there and, and terrorized the, you know, the Indian tribe. And basically by burying someone there, you're essentially feeding this creature, uh, which allows it to use the corpses to kind of, you know, kind of terrorize everybody else or kill or do whatever. Um, I said all of that to say that I wish the movie would have went more into that. You know, while I'm okay with the ambiguity, like it's, it's like the movie touches on it just enough to be annoying to where like, okay, tell me a little bit, like tell me what the fuck's going on or else just ignore it completely um, type of thing. Anyway, for me, um, more just amazing, absolutely amazing effects on this cat. When, uh, when Lewis has to peel him off the grass, it's amazing. Um, but like I said, the first time I saw this, I was like, why the hell did Judd tell him about this thing? Like he tells us later, his dog came back and was a lunatic dog. So I was like, well, what the fuck? Why, why would you even, why even bring that up? Why even do that? Uh, but the more I thought about it, the more I understood, you know, like it can easily help her cope, you know, more with losing the cat. And I guess the corruption in the, in the pets at least seem a little bit minor compared to the humans. Um, plus there's a line in the book that, that reads, uh, that Judd smiled and, and said, uh, I think it's a dangerous place, but not for cats or dogs or pet hamsters. Go on and bury your animal, Lewis. And, you know, so later he admits to Lewis that he did it for selfish reasons. He wanted to share that secret. So if you're wondering the same thing as me, there you go. Um, I do think the trek to the uh, Indian burial ground was way too fucking long, by the way. Um, and the last thing I want to say is I want to point out the walking path, you know, that's to and from the house and into the pet cemetery. I really liked how that was done. Like apparently achieving the effect of, of shining in the moonlight was one of the hardest elements for the production team to pull off. And, you know, I don't know, maybe it reminds me of Halloween Horror Nights, Universe Studios. I don't know, but I liked it. Great effects on that nasty fucking rat too in the bathtub. Looked very real. Um, and then having him step on it, ugh, fucking disgusting. Uh, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, so I'll, uh, again, right here, I like that we learn, you know, what's kind of going on with this pet cemetery thing. You know, at least the family to it once, and just kind of like, huh, that's interesting. You know, just just like pet with cross, you know, like dead animals with crosses above them. Like, okay, that's fine. But like, then you get Church dying, and the uh, the the sound effect, not just how he how the cat looked, but the sound effect of ripping the cat up off the ground was was very like very well done it gets a little bit of a giggle out of me as a cat hater not i don't want the cat to die but it was pretty funny uh anyway but i'm with you bro i'm like well why are you telling this man about this like this seems like a bad idea you know good damn well that it didn't end well for you why would you go ahead and do this it's explained away but still like what like like what is wrong with you man and I they get some really good shots here of him of them walking all the way to the ancient burial ground. Like I like the way that I love the way it looks. I love the walking path as well because it feels like something like it like that walking path like to a pet cemetery feels very small town feels very real. I love all that. Uh, again, I think there's just some really beautiful shots here because of where they shot at the location. And I think it it's a you know it, it looks really good, but. I tell you one thing. Every time this man has a beer, with <laughs> every time these two guys have a beer together, I'm like, oh man, like Judd and Lewis. Every time they have a beer, I'm like, eh, something bad happens like immediately after that. And so, like the cat died. There's a mouse in the tub. Like, and and by the way, you're right. I that mouse in the tub scene disgusts me. That's one of my biggest fears. Like, I'm not scared of rats. 
in mice, but like they gross me out to no end. And so to have one come at me in a tub would just, I'd probably puke, not going to lie. And I'd scream like a, like a five-year-old. Like I, I would not be okay with that. But I was, I was with my guy there for taking a nice hot soak because I still do that. That's right. You know, your joints are sore. You've had a long day. Just buried your cat in the pet cemetery. Hoping he comes back to life. You take a little nap or you, you take a little soak and then the cat shows up and it's all a mess. So this, at least this set of scenes, to me, the story gets going a little bit. It's after this that I feel like we just have some dragging. But so far, we're right into it. The cat's already brought back. I really, I really enjoy everything about this set of scenes, honestly. Probably my favorite set of scenes in the movie, I think. Yeah, so um, this set of scenes has something just completely wild in it to me. Um, it seems like it would be frowned upon in the medical community just to fucking throw a medical file away. Like, he threw that shit right I in the trash can. <laughs> the hell was that? But, um, anyway, okay. And then, okay, why would Judd insist on burying the cat over there? So, to me, this goes back to things that I would tweak and change. It seems much more logical for Judd to be the one that told Lewis about the burial ground, but, you know, insisted you got to stay away from it. But Lewis wanted to, you know, be the one that insists on burying over there for his daughter's sake. And Judge is trying to talk him in out of it. Like that would make his character much more sympathetic. But you lose a lot of that sympathy with what happens to him later in the movie, in my opinion, because it was his his idea in the first place. Like he told him about it, and he's the one that led him over there. It's like, hey, bury the cat here. So to me, that's one of those things that I would definitely. That's a major change I would make. Is Judd be the one that like kind of told him about it because he had to? Like, okay, if you won't shut up about it, I'll let you know the secret, but you have to promise me you'll never do it. That's not the route they go. So I think that's a questionable decision there. Um, now I will tell you though, that cat would, uh, use up all night lives, dropping a fucking rat in the bathtub on me. Nope. Uh, the only thing in life that I'm afraid of is rats and mice. And I'm not bullshitting. Like I, you know, I think I've told the story before on air, but there was a black widow in my basement. And I picked it up by the leg and transported it outside. I don't give a shit. I'm not afraid of spiders or snakes, nothing. Like that. But a rat? Nope. No, thank you. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And then Missy. If your stomach pain was that bad, maybe, you know, instead of hanging yourself, maybe you should have actually talked to a fucking doctor. Like Lewis offered to have a look at, you know, check you out and see what's going on. You're just like, no, I'm fine. Just for you to go kill yourself. Like, I don't give two shits about this character. They didn't. She wasn't in, in the story enough for me to feel bad about the fact she killed herself. And then the fact that she killed herself, like, she doesn't even come back into play at all. Like, you know, at least when Pascal killed himself, like, he becomes a good ghost and he's trying to help the family. Missy's death didn't do jack shit. Like, she just, she killed herself and, that, and that's it. Didn't even put a hardship on the family. Like, you didn't even feel stress. For Lewis uh, and and his wife there, because oh, you know, we lost our our maid. Now we were more stressed. We got you know we're spread thin. That didn't. That could have played a major part into what happens to Gage. Like maybe instead of doing it at this fun family outing and these out flying kites, maybe they're running around like the chicken with their head cut off because they don't have the extra set of eyes helping them out around the house. Gage gets loose and gets in the road. Like nope, she just died for no reason. So big problem with that. And the last thing I have is, uh, you know, this kid's got some fucking nerve 
to walk in the living room and just grab the remote and turn the TV off. I'll be damned. I'll be damned. I'd have thrown her ass out in the middle of the road. But, you know, I digress. That's, that's just me. But, you know, have some fucking respect. Respect your elders. But overall, I agree. This is a good set of scenes. Like it, it <laughs> It's going to progress some storylines. But I have issues with some of the storylines because I just I personally would have done it differently, like I mentioned, because I, I think that draws us in more and it makes it much more uh, captivating. Lewis is in bed reading when Rachel walks in. She says she gets scared and defensive. She brings up Zelda, who died of spinal meningitis. We see Rachel Younger, who says she was treated like a dirty secret. I had to feed her. We wanted her to die so she wouldn't be in pain and we wouldn't be in pain. Parents were gone when she died. She convulsed and choked, and she feared they'd blame her. I ran from the house screaming, Zelda's dead. Lewis hugs her and says, if I needed another reason to not like your father and mother, I have one now. He gets up to get her a volume. We see a truck leaving Orenko and hits the road. We see Lewis flying a kite as the family and Judd watches them. He gives Gage the kite and he drops the spool. The wind takes the spool into the road as Lewis turns around as the other family members say they want to fly it. Judd yells out not to let him get in the road. Lewis chases after Gage but trips as Gage is killed by a semi in the road. Lewis screams out no as we see pictures of Gage flash on the screen. He's at the table looking through photos as Judd walks in. The sedative finally took hold. Ellie walks down saying she wants to sleep in her room. Mommy keeps taking the covers. Ellie says she's going to carry this photo until God gives Gage back. Lewis, take care of your girl. She needs you as Judd walks out. We're at the funeral now as Rachel's father says he hopes you rot in hell. Where were you? And he punches him. The two men fight as Gage's casket is knocked over. <laughs> I just wrote, it's a terrible experience for this family. Lewis puts Ellie in her bed as she grips the picture of her and Gage. God could take it back if he wanted to, couldn't he? Can I have faith in that, she asks. Good night, honey, as he walks out the door. He sees Church sitting on Rachel with glowing eyes. Fuck off, hairball. He caresses her face and leaves the room. Judd walks in and Church runs outside. Lewis gets some liquor and Judd apologizes. He says he may be responsible for the death of his son. He says, you're thinking of putting him up there. Don't say the thought hasn't crossed your mind. Judd says he lied. A person has been buried up there. A local boy toward, towards the end of World War II. Sometimes dead is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. Lots of folks saw Timmy walking back and forth. She told the men it was an abomination. We see Timmy's dad trying to restrain him as the other men light the house on fire. We see Timmy and Bill engulfed in flames. Sometimes dead is better. Don't think about doing it, Lewis. And he says again, sometimes dead is better. You see what I'm getting at here, Lewis? That place may have made Gage die because I introduced you to it, Lewis, as he smacks the table. Rachel is back at the airport with a family as Ellie tells her grandparents about the nightmare she had about her daddy, Gage, and Pascal. Erwin apologizes and Lewis tells Ellie he'll be there in a few days. He swears everything will be okay. They board the plane, leaving Lewis behind. All right, Brian, that's the next set of scenes got. What'd you think? Gut-wrenching. Yeah, no doubt. I had that probably, I think, that exact word written down, too. Um, but as far as the one thing I meant to talk about in the last set of scenes was the housekeeper. Uh, what was her name again? Missy, you talked about, Dustin. Um, you know, it, it just it kind of leads me to the other thing that I was going to talk about. And I think the book works so well because of its ability to really delve into the theme of the story. Um, and this probably where it works against the fact that King was a screenwriter on it. 
Um, but it's basically like the theme of the story basically being like, how do you or, or how do people deal with powerlessness and, and the ability shit, really the inability to deal with or, or handle death. Um, you know, that's such a big part of this movie with Lois, his inability to, to save his son, despite being a doctor. Um, again, something else that's more explored in the book, but even Missy having cancer and, you know, she dealt with it by committing suicide. But that's one of the parts I wish had been more explored in this movie. I, I would have liked to have felt more for Missy, like Dustin was talking about. Agreed, because um, I didn't even know she had cancer until you just said it. I, I never read. Did the I book. just make that she up? Writes it, she write note, it on the note. That's what. I'm but that's right. it's not very legible, so I don't blame you. Mm, yeah, <laughs> it's it's never... really bad cursive writing. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Hell, kids nowadays can't even read cursive. They don't even know what fuck she wrote. Uh, oh, anyway, all right, Grandpa Simpson. yelling at the cloud um anyway even even though i also think they miss an opportunity for for delving more into ellie's really lack of of having to learn about death through the loss of the cat which is kind of the point of uh, something they do a lot better in the remake as well um i would have loved to to have seen that and and less of of this damn Zelda storyline. Like it fucking sucks. Like, again, I understand they're trying to show how everyone here deals with loss and, and why, but it really doesn't work for me. Um, I think Crosby does well showing how upset she is. Uh, but when she's even telling the story, it just kind of comes across as cheesy to me with the voiceover. Um, fun fact, the role of Zelda is played by a dude. Uh, <laughs> Mary Lambert wanted Zelda and her scenes to frighten the audience, but but did not believe that a 13-year-old girl was scary, so she cast Andrew Hubatek uh, in, in the role to make something be, quote, off about Zelda, and that really fucking worked. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a disturbing scene because of the makeup, the effects, but like I said, it just seems out of place in this movie. Um, I also didn't notice until the second watch through that painting and the flashback scene that kind of comes back into play in that last scene with gauge um a line about it maybe talking about it maybe saying something about the painting you know might have been nice in my opinion um you know and last the gauge scene i mean wow that's a, such a fucking impactful scene and like i said my open you know it really made me feel something you know it really it really saddened me i mean even the funeral scene after shit as a viewer you're still reeling from that like last scene and was like holy shit did that just happen oh fun fact i actually have met many times the man who drives the truck in this movie donnie green uh he comes into my work all the time and wants to come on the show so i think we'll have him on to tell a few kind of behind the scenes stories with the cast and stuff but um anyway just a just a gut-wrenching scene for me personally and and holy shit at the acting job from fred gwynn at the dinner table talking to lewis just phenomenal. That's something in the remake they try to do again, but it just does not hit the same way that Fred Gwynn let it hit. Yeah. Uh, so I slightly disagree with you on this, you know, all the Zelda stuff, and here's why. It's really the only time I think that we get any like, quality or character development with Rachel, and it's really the only time we get to kind of see Lewis and Rachel act like they like each other, act like they're a couple, you know? I mean, it's really that kind of, like, bonding moment where he, you know, he hugs her and, and you know, lays down with her and tries to comfort her. So, now, I get what you're saying, though, as far as the Zelda story in general. 
I don't necessarily think it adds anything too creepy. You know, that they try to use it later uh, to try to play on her fears and stuff. And But I, I did like the fact that we had a little bit of depth to the character about how she was forced to watch her sister as a young girl, which she probably shouldn't have had to do that. And maybe that's why there's some stuff where he doesn't like her parents and they don't like him. And, and I, you know, you, 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 you at least kind of understand what the riff is there. But I like that we kind of start to, it looks like we're, you know, we're happy here. You know, it's a nice day outside. Uh, they're flying kites. Everything's great. I, I really like the way that they set this up to make it seem like it's a really nice day. And then, bam, they just hit you with a gut uh, gut punch and Gage's death. Like, it's a really traumatic scene for sure. I, I, I mean, it gets me. I have I don't have kids, but it still gets me. And I, and, and I already know what happens. Like, I know the ending. But when I see it, the few times I've seen it, I'm like, man, that is such a kick in the balls right there. It, it, it's, it's hard to watch sometimes. I'm, and I think it's well acted by everyone involved. Like, the fear that Fred Gwynn and and everyone else give, I think, is is really, really good. Uh, then you get this funeral scene, and let me just tell you, it's heart-wrenching for different reasons, but I'm going to tell you right now, you punch me at my son's funeral, I'm beating the holy shit out of you. I don't care what guy or friend is holding me back. I don't care that you're my father-in-law. You punch me at my son's funeral, I'm beating the shit out of you in front of everybody. I will embarrass you. I do not care. Um, so don't, I would not recommend doing that, but anyway, uh, the, there's a lot of really good acting in the scene. You know, you, you mentioned the dinner or not the dinner scene, but the table scene. Um, uh, hold on. Let, let, let me backtrack real quick. I love how they handshake before they get on the plane. No, man, I'm not shaking your hand. Nope. Not doing that. You can go with your parents. That's fine, but I'm not going to be there for all that. But I know at a son just die trying to move on all that stuff. I understand it. But back to the acting at the table seat, it, it's great on both ends. Like, I really, really think Gwen and Midkiff really just just shine here. Uh, just, like, the kind of not not losing it that happens to, uh, to Lewis, because he's not losing it, but the looks in his eyes that he keeps giving, starting with this set of scenes, where he kind of looks like he's not losing it, but he's starting to go a little, like, he's starting to go a little mad, and we all go a little mad sometimes. Uh, so yeah, that's a reference for all you people anyway, but nope, fantastically acted. I, I still think the last set of scenes is my favorite, but this one has some of the better acting, better storytelling that we get. So I agree with what you're saying about Z Zelda, um, being unnecessary, Brian. Um, but I will say as a kid watching this, Zelda was the most terrifying part of the movie. Like that dude looked scary as shit. But um, I do. I think it's unnecessary. Also, now I get what you're saying, Mike, about how it uh, you know provides some backstory and lets us know what's going on with her, uh, with Rachel and her upbringing, and why there's resentment with her parents and everything. But still, what do we have here? We've got a movie about a family losing a kid. The kid comes back to life as an evil little kid. And it just called so the Zelda storyline doesn't add anything of substance. Like it makes totally her fair. character, it makes her character more sympathetic for her upbringing. But even her upbringing is irrelevant. We don't need extra sympathy because she's a mother that loses her little kid. 
So that's all the, you know, that's all the empathy that we need or, you know, sympathetic things that we need for her, in my opinion. Um, what a random outburst for Ellie when they're outside here and uh, she, she calls him a, a numb shit. Like, what the fuck was that about? Like, okay, that, that was a weird little added line there. Um, weird dialogue choice. But like I said earlier, this is the worst parenting moment in the history of our show. Man, what the fuck was that? One minute, you're flying a kite, and the next, you're leveled by Peterbilt 378. I just don't know how you get from that, that point A to point B um, and, and not have your other kid taken away from you by CPS. Because that is that's some negligence right there. Um, I completely agree, though, Mike. Um, Pops would have been joining his grandson. You yell at me, you cause a scene, you swing at me, and yeah. knock over my son's casket. Yeah, you're dead. You're dead. Yeah, yeah. So it is what it is. Um, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, Judd's telling the story here of Timmy and why it's a bad idea. And again, I go back to. He should have been the one that is, uh, you know, this part would make so much more sense if he hadn't been the one that insisted on burying the cat up there in the first place. If he was just doing everything in his power to like, listen, you see what's happening with your cat. I told you not to use that, that, uh, that burial ground. You can't do this. You can't even consider this with Gage. But we didn't go that route. So instead, we get him telling the story of why you can't bury a human there. Even though I told you to bury a cat there, listen, this is why you can't bury Gage up there. Um, he's telling the story of Timmy, and I just can't sit here and I can't help but think that not only did you commit murder by killing Timmy, now Timmy did have to die, but you committed arson. You had no reason to burn up his parents, his dad's house like that. That man lost his son and everything he owned for, for what? For what? But anyway, my biggest takeaway from this set of scenes is that uh, to quote one of my favorite comedies, uh, walk hard the Dewey Cox story the wrong kid died I, it probably should have been Ellie because she was annoying as shit but engaged was too innocent sweet to have died but you know it is what it is pretty good set of scenes and um yeah we're setting up for a hell of a finale man fuck them kids apparently <laughs> damn right all right Lewis parks by the graveyard and sneaks in with shovels in broad fucking daylight he sends his son's uh, he finds his son's tombstone and sits beside it what happened to you is wrong. Remember, Doc, the barrier is not meant to be crossed. The ground is sour, Victor says. If he's like Timmy, I'll just put him back to sleep. Rachel and Ellie don't have to know. Ellie is screaming out for Mommy. She says Pascal is a good ghost, and he's warning us that Daddy is going to do something bad. Rachel says there are no ghosts, and she asks for her to call Daddy and make sure he's okay. She asks, where do I know that name? As Victor appears beside her, she runs downstairs. We see Lewis digging up Gage's grave now. Rachel calls the house to no answer as we see a terrifying portrait of a small man in a green suit and a cat beside him. Rachel calls Judd now and asks if Lewis is with him. Rachel tells Judd she's coming home. Don't do that, he says as she hangs up. A cop pulls up and scans the graveyard but doesn't see Lewis and drives away. Lewis smiles and continues digging. Judd walks to his porch, sits down and says, You done it, stupid old man. Now you gotta undo it. Lewis opens the coffin up and holds his son. Old Gage is going to be all right. He wraps him up in a blanket. Rachel falls into the wall as she opens Zelda's old room. She sees Zelda in bed who sits up. I'm coming for you, Rachel, and this time I'll get you. Gage and I will get you, she says in a spooky voice, for letting us die. Rachel wakes up on the plane from a nightmare. We see Victor sitting behind her. 
She runs through the airport and to her plane right before it takes off. Judd falls asleep as we see Lewis walking down the path to beyond the pet cemetery. Rachel is now renting a car with Victor's help. We see Lewis at the burial ground now as he hears his name called and a face emerged from a rock pile below, but it's just his imagination, he says. Rachel is speeding home when a tire blows and she drives off the road. She exits the car and Victor says it's trying to stop you. She asks if anyone is there. Come back to me, Gage, Lewis says. Come back to us as he now walks back home. He walks into the cellar, dropping his tools and falls into his bed. We see the stones above Gage's grave move as a hand emerges. Rachel hitchhikes with a semi-driver. Hop in, babe. The door opens and we see muddy little boots walk inside. Gage goes through Lewis's medical bag and steals the scalpel. Judd wakes up to thunder and goes in his house when he sees small footprints leading inside. He hears a child's laugh and yells, Who's there? Let's play hide and go seek. Judd goes upstairs. Gage, you the one playing games? He follows the laughing into a bedroom. Judd whips out his pocket knife. Judd's Achilles is cut from below the bed as Church distracts him. He falls back as Gage slices across his lips and mouth. He now bites into his throat, killing Judd. And the next set of scenes are the ending. Brian, what would you think? Now, up till now, I think it's been terrible from here on out. I think Dale Midkiff's performance is stellar. Um, you know, that almost wooden, emotionless, glazed-over look and the way that he's delivering the lines is very fitting now and believable now, you know, after Lewis has lost his son. Um, you know, and people say how stupid it is to try this with Gage, but I mean, damn, like, look at it from his point of view. You know, he did it with the cat and it worked. Um, you know, losing a child's probably the worst emotional pain you can feel as a human being. I mean, something that I'm not sure I would have the strength to ever endure and hope to never have to find that out. But, you know, if there was even the slightest chance that this would work, hell, I'd probably do the same thing. Um, the only difference is if he came back the way Gage did, I'd probably just let him do me in because, you know, fuck it. <laughs> uh, zero chance I'd let it go any further for me. Um, I also don't think I like this continuation of Victor Pascal with Rachel. Um, like, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with Dustin. I think it could be cut completely. But if you're going to do it, like, just at the beginning, I get the attachment with Lewis. But him visiting Rachel all these miles away and then having an almost, like, weekend with Bernie's fucking trip back with her back into town, I thought was dumb. Like, yeah. you know, and him, him him popping up to tell Rachel after her crash that the cemetery is trying to keep her away, it was almost eye-rolling to me. Um, mm -hmm. Just have him, not shown, but just have him maybe visit Ellie via her dream and just plan enough worry that Rachel... Ha, you know, has to come home. I don't know. But the rest of this, I think, is just nonsense. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry to the, the twin dream team of Blaze and Bo that they had here. But whichever one it was that had to give this dream or the after dream performance, woof, ugh, not great there, not great. Um, and last thing I'll say is there's some beautiful, just really gut-wrenching shots of, of Lewis holding Gage's body. Um, just, I mean, such hard yet yet gorgeous scenes to watch. Um, and it really felt like it it turned into a Chucky movie out of nowhere. <laughs> but man, uh, I just bravo to those effects during the whole scene with killing Judd, you know, showing the Achilles tear, the mouth slash. Oh, I thought it was just phenomenal. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot on this set of scenes, honestly. 
and I think it's because I don't like this set at scenes at all. Uh, it drags to me. You get all this stuff with Rachel. You know, you mentioned all the man, all the Pascal stuff. Like I, I, I just don't understand why it's here. Dustin is a hundred percent on to me. Like could cut it all and it wouldn't change the movie one bit. Like I just, I'm not interested. And I feel like it makes this a little hokey, all this stuff with Rachel that I feel like could be really good. I, I just feel like it makes it a little cheesy. You know, I said, I, in my open that I feel like most of this holds up. This is the exception to it. Like I just, it's just a guy with, you know, a half open head and, you know, that's kind of following her around. It's very strange to me. Um, now I, I, I do like all this stuff with Gage. Like I, so I shouldn't say I don't like, I don't, you know, hate everything here. I like the stuff with Gage. Like I feel like him being the quote unquote killer really does work, especially the kill with Judd. Now, how he got so distracted that he let a three-year-old, dead three-year-old, by the way, kill him, I'll never understand. But okay. <laughs> or excuse me, it brought back to life the three-year-old, I should say. But, like, man, you got to pay attention. You know, let that happen to you. A three-year-old eat your neck out. Like, I just, it's crazy. But it is very, I could understand, especially in 1989, if you hadn't read the book. And you just saw this movie and you saw this little kid killing someone on screen like that would probably be really terrifying and you know reading through our comments that we got i'm like i understand why people were so terrified of this film at you know when the first time they saw it because this is like very shocking to see there's a reason that children in horror is like one of the the things that scares people the most there's been freaking horror courses given out on that in college so like that alone makes this set of scenes kind of uh iconic i don't really like this set of scenes until we get to that though so you have to kind of work your way through a lot of bs to even get there in the first place i think that's kind of my problem with it so pascal's return here man just really unnecessary to me um i i I just continue to think that it's a completely stupid storyline his whole morality and um trying to steer him in the right direction. His whole character could have just been absorbed by Judd. Like Judd could have been the person who's trying to keep them on the, on the right path and keep them away from making the bad decisions. But instead we got Pascal and it's, it's unneeded. Um, then we got Judd out here drinking some Budweiser and smoking some Marlboro Reds. He really is the kind of old man I always envisioned that I'd grow into one day if I lived to be that age. But um thought that was just, Chef's kiss to the to the two choices there, and then you know when she's in the airport and she's running towards the uh, the gate there. Make it wait, I can't. And then she just runs. She goes, "Okay, I'll call the pilot." Some great fucking negotiation there. I don't think that that's how that works. I don't think you can just run up the uh, the runway there and and they'll stop. But okay, um, and then we get an unnecessary jump scare. Like, what the fuck was that thing jumping out of the water? That was unnecessary, unneeded. Just there's certain things in this movie that are they they just like kind of make it hokey to me. The airport that shit was hokey, and then, especially when Pascal's telling uh, the woman, "Don't close that yet," or just whatever he said, and then the plane being held for her, and then the jump scare here is just completely unnecessary. But um, <clears throat> excuse me, very trusting of her to get into that semi truck. 
like it's late at night. You're on a country road in the middle of nowhere. The semi has the number 666 underneath the, the door in clear view. Like she is, Rachel's just asking to be on a, on a episode of unsolved mysteries. Like what the fuck are you doing? Getting in this truck, but it all worked out. That was unnecessary. I don't, I don't think that her wrecking the car and having to hitch a ride from this guy, like what? Okay. What? Why? Why? It didn't add anything to the story. It it was a little bit of a swerve, honestly. Like you thought that this guy was going to end up murdering her or kidnapping her because that's how uh, truck drivers have been portrayed when they're picking up hitchhikers. And then, nope, it was just there was nothing that came of it. He's just a nice guy. Um, but we do get a, a great payoff here with a brutal death of Judd, getting his Achilles cut and then uh, sliced and then his throat bit out. Like I would have punted that little bastard personally. Like I'm built different. I would have kicked his ass across the room. But that was an incredible death. But you lose a lot of sympathy, though. He's the one that buried the cat up there and opened up this whole can of worms. So if they'd have done it differently from the get-go, you would have felt so much worse for Judd. But we, I don't. I don't. It's just a cool death with some uh, pretty good effects for 1989. But, um, yeah, good set of scenes, though. All right, guys, here's the ending. Rachel is dropped off at her home as Victor says, this is the end of the line for me. He doesn't think things will be all right. Rachel goes to walk inside until she hears a child's laugh from Judd's house. She walks up the steps until church scares her. She walks inside calling Judd's name. She hears a moaning and calls for Judd again. Are you up there? She walks up the steps and she hears her name called. She opens the door and it's Zelda. I finally came back for you. I'm going to twist your back like mine so you'll never get out of bed again. She laughs as Gage appears. She can't believe it. I brought you something, Mommy. He reveals a scalpel. She goes to hug him as we see a flashback to him being run over. Lewis falls out the bed and he sees muddy footprints on his floor and his bag ransacked. He hears a laugh and goes to the kitchen. The phone rings. It's Erwin calling to see if Rachel got back all right. He asks to talk to her. Ellie wants to speak with her. She's almost hysteric. She had a dream her mother was dead. Lewis goes into the cellar, but the phone rings again. It's Gage. I'm a judge. Will you come and play with me? First, I play with Judd. Then I play with Mommy. We had an awful good time. Now I want to play with you. He asks, what did you do? Lewis gets a syringe and feeds Church a steak. Lewis grabs Church and injects it with the poison, killing it. He yells to be dead to the cat. He goes inside Judd's house, which looks like a swamp-infested dump, calling for Gage. What have you done? He yells out for Rachel as he finds her shoe, and the house turns back normal. We hear Gage saying, now I want to play with you. Lewis goes upstairs and looks for Gage. He finds Rachel's purse on the floor and, find, and finds Judd's dead body under the bed. Gage laughs as Rachel's body falls from the attic hanging. Gage jumps down, biting and attacking. Lewis throws him against the wall and he grabs another syringe. He hides it under his leg as he says, come here. He sticks the needle in his neck as Gage cries. No fair, Gage says as he walks away and stumbles backwards into the wall. He scowls at him as he dies. Lewis pours gas all over the house. He ignites it, burning his son's corpse up. He carries Rachel at the house as the house is engulfed with flames. He carries her body as Victor says, don't make it worse. He says he waited too long with Gage. She just died a little while ago. Victor fades away as he yells no. It'll be all right, Rachel, I promise. Lewis sits down, shuffling cards. He hears the church bells as a door opens. He smiles when he sees Rachel is back. He stands up and we see her eye oozing and she's covered in blood. 
They kiss as she grabs the kitchen knife and it cuts to black as we hear you as, as we hear Lewis yell no. All right, Brian, what do you think about the ending? Um, it was a decent ending. Um, I think it was better than the remakes ending, but we'll get to that later. Um, there were a few things that took me out of it, though, like, you know, Gage having superhuman strength to stage Rachel's body somehow, but yet can't really fend off Lewis. Didn't really get that. Um, honestly, I think Midkiff, I think, did a good job here, too. Um, I know I talked shit about him earlier, but he, he at the end of the movie, really kind of redeems himself with his acting. Um, the freak out over the cat. I loved his delivery of the line. Lie down, play dead, be dead. Um, I just I thought it was great. Um, some of the only really emotion that he showed in much of the movie, but um, that's understandable after Gage dies. So I'll, I'll cut him some slack there. Um, that phone call by Gage at the start of it, and then, you know, Miko Hughes' acting performance after Lewis injects him with that needle, giving the, the no fair line again. Like, that's just something that really resonated with me and made me feel something. And again, I credit any movie that can do that. Um, oh, and the effects on Rachel's eye. Holy shit, like when she's kissing him at the end. Phenomenal work. That looked disgusting. Uh, great job. And, you know, I, I was wondering this, since, you know, King likes to connect all of his movies, does Ellie have The Shining? Like, with her dreams and all really kind of being premonitions, basically, that, that turn out true? Like, I didn't catch that until my second viewing, and I didn't really read anything like that it just kind of popped in my head and thought yeah I, I did see that that was one of the things that king was disappointed with is that he wanted it to be more obvious that she was a psychic okay i don't think he used the word the shining but that i mean let's be real that's what it is basically okay so i thought go ahead mike uh yeah the ending is okay i mean i like again going back to the last set i i like all the stuff with gage and he's a very creepy uh kind of final killer person you know especially with the not fair line like that is some really good stuff and there's some good acting here and all that but i almost like again it's like this in the book so it's not like this crazy idea but like you you get the death of rachel and it just kind of feels i don't know i kind of wish for their relationships sake i kind of feel like for their relationship's sake i would have liked to see them both survive like a little bit of a happy ending, just given the fact that they've been through so much. But I understand. Uh, and again, the, the scene where, I mean, I just knew, you know, the first time I ever saw it. And when you're reading the book, like, you just know he's going to bring her back to life, like, or uh, uh, attempt to. And I think that scene is done really well, but them kissing is absolutely fucking disgusting. Like, there is no, <laughs> there's, there's, oh God, it grosses me out every time I've seen it. And finally, I would have actually liked to seen Rachel kill Lewis. Like I think it would have been a, a, a more of a bit better way to end it than just kind of leaving it up to our imagination. I would have liked to actually see the kill. Um, you know, all in all, the ending is fine. Like, like it's okay. I, I do think at this point I'm kind of ready for it to end, though. So... The ghost, you know, the Pascal stuff and the Zelda stuff, um, completely unnecessary and unneeded. But on the flip side, if you do want some kind of character being, you know, this voice of reason and this this warning, I have it right here. The Ellie psychic stuff, that storyline was so underutilized. Like they could have eliminated Zelda, eliminated Pascal, and amplified Judd's involvement and his concern and his good guy qualities 
and amplified Ellie psychic um, storyline. And boom, you've got a better movie in my opinion, but that's okay. And then what the hell, when uh, he walks into Judd's house, like what the fuck happened? looks like a haunted house with burns and moss growing everywhere. And then boom, it's back to normal. I think that was unnecessary. Like you don't need the, you know, gauge to be able to, uh, to trick and play visual tricks on um, Lewis here. Don't need that. Like you got a little killer bastard child running around. That's enough. You don't need him to be able to change the appearance and play mind tricks, but okay. Um, now also you mentioned the, uh, the, the little pork chop thing. Apparently that was like the hardest thing to get the, the cat to do was eat the pork chop. And then, um, <clears throat> when Lewis killed church for the second time, uh, the needle is rigged to look like it's sticking him, but it's not. The cat was actually sedated by a veterinarian. And a uh, representative of the American Humane Society was present, and the cat made a full recovery. So that's something I thought was a cool little tidbit because, um, especially for the time, like 1989, it's always curious how they, how much they cared and how well they treated the animals back then. But um, <clears throat> anyway, major major issue I have aside from Gage being able to play these uh, mind tricks and change the appearance of the house and all that. How the hell did he get Rachel's body up there and hung with a noose? Like, you know, the, the kid being a killer is one thing, but the kid having superhuman strength. Uh, no, you know, fuck this shit. I'm going to carry mom up the stairs here and hang her from a noose. Uh, that didn't do it for me. I don't, I don't like that. But um, Gage, one of my favorite parts of this entire movie, though, is after he's been stuck with the needle, Gage walking off and saying, no fair, as he walks off like that has always been hilarious to me. Like what a funny, like he, Miko Hughes just knocked it out of the park with his delivery of that line. It's always made me laugh. But, um, <clears throat> the, the ending was a little, like the actual ending ending was a little hit and miss for me because Lewis even having the nerve to even consider burying Rachel in the burial ground. It just makes you lose all sympathy for him. This man has lost his, his son, lost his wife. And now he's considering, you know, bringing more hardship into his life of putting his wife up there. He's never going to see his daughter again, which, by the way, I guess, fuck that storyline. We don't know what come of her. But, um, you know, this son of a bitch, like, he went through it all and then put himself in the situation to, you know, go through more pain and hardship by putting Rachel up there. He deserved it. He deserves it. Uh, point blank. I have no sympathy for it. I, I wish that if he's going to put Rachel up there, like I wish they could have just shown a definitive, okay, he killed her and he gets, he gets Ellie back and Ellie and him at least get to live happily ever after. But I don't even think I wanted that at this point, you dumbass. But um, still it's a, it's a highly enjoyable movie for me. Maybe it's because of nostalgia because it sounds like I've ripped this movie to parts or to shreds over the past few scenes, but it's okay. All right, guys, let's jump into our social media comments and questions. We'll knock out Facebook first. Kevin Podoff said, this, the movie has two great acts, but the final one is just turds. Still better than the remake. The creepy sister was truly terrifying. Thanks for the entertainment, guys. Hey, you're welcome, Kevin. Appreciate that. Uh, Michelle Merza commented, this movie was one of my first experiences with horror movies as a kid. I think a lot of people could say that, honestly. The sister scared the shit out of me, and years later, I found out it was a guy playing the part. <laughs> hey, same thing with Barbarian. Uh, big titty lady, that's a guy playing that role. 
Joe Swinford, I remember watching this as a kid because parenting was done right at the Larson household. Do you guys like the original or the remake better? I'll go first. Uh, There are some things about the remake I do like a little bit better, but I like the original better. Yeah, so I think both have pros and cons. Um, You know, like you said, the new one changes. that's how I feel too. The new one changes a few things up enough to say – like I, I, it was definitely justified being made. Um, the acting, I think, is exponentially better. Um, but I will say John Lithgow is okay as Judd, but he's no Fred Gwynn, and, and it's not even close. Um, let's see, I think the relationships are better done. The, the script, I think, seems tighter. It's just the ending. It just isn't very good either. Um, I'd probably prefer this ending over that one. But with that said, and this may be blasphemous to say, but I would rather watch the remake again before this one. So I never go ahead. Oh no, no, go ahead, Dustin. Go ahead. I've said it a few times, but I've never seen the uh, the remake. I think I own it. I'm not 100 percent sure on that. I can't remember. But well, um, no. Um, but it's just one of those things. Like you guys know um, behind the scenes here that I'm huge believer that originality is dead. And uh, I don't get overly excited for uh, remakes, reboots, and sequels of movies that I don't feel need one. Um, I've never felt that this one needed one, so I didn't get in a big hurry to watch the original. I, obviously, I still haven't done it, so I can't really speak on it. I, this movie is such a instrumental part of my childhood uh, and my love for horror that I never really wanted a remake. Even, I mean, even, with even with all the flaws okay. that this one has. Yeah. I mean, I... I agree with you for the most part. I will say Brian is right. They do enough different to have a justified making of that movie. Um, I will say I like them pretty much the same. I think they both suffer from a lot of the same issues. The only thing, the only reason I'm going to pick the original is I, as much as I like John Lithgow and a lot of other stuff, he just doesn't, he doesn't play that character as well as Fred Gwynn. Like it's just, not the same without him. So to kind of like see someone else play that, you know, it's kind of like Malcolm McDowell. I always want to say Michael Mc, McDonald for some reason, but it, it's like Malcolm McDowell playing Loomis. Like, yeah, it's good, but it's, it's, it's not the same. So that, that's kind of how I feel. And I know me and you talked about us in the past, Mike, but hell the remake, they spoiled the twist in the damn trailer. <laughs> so they already let us know what's going to happen. Uh, I was just that. that made me so mad. Like, I didn't why know would that. you put that out? Like, that made no sense I, at all. And I normally don't mind spoilers. I really don't. But like on that one, I'm like, oh man, you gotta have a twist like that. You gotta save it. I didn't know that. Yeah. All right. Uh, Matthew Forrest asked, has anyone read the book? If so, how did you like the movie as compared to the book? I have not read the book. I have many years ago and I liked them about the same. Uh, I think it's an interesting story. I can't read. No, Dustin can't read. Brian, did you read the book? <laughs> I have not. I, I did some research on it for this, um, enough that I feel like that the book would be better, but I have not sat down and watched it. No, I've, I've, uh, read a, I've read a good amount of Stephen King books. I never read this one. My classmate, Tracy, uh, she replied back to Matthew, the book is always better with a laughing emoji, but for this movie, it was actually pretty darn close to the book. Obviously, they can't include every detail, and there were minor changes. But Stephen King himself wrote the screenplay, so it really did the book justice. And my mom commented saying, my sister said the book was better and scarier. Okay. I'm not really a reader, so I'm going to watch the movie just about every time over it. I'll jump over to Instagram now. 
Jay Hambrick 88 commented saying, I love this movie. It follows the book really well. I just wish it would have utilized the Wendigo more. Okay. Uh, Missy Hutchinson Wall commented, this movie freaked me out. Truly creepy and also some really gut-wrenching scenes. Don't get me started on church. Always hated the scene when he bites it. Never mind the little kid. R.I.P. Church. LOL. <laughs> Gail the Snail comment. Oh boy, talk about nostalgia. This movie was my introduction into horror. When I was five, my parents thought I was asleep. They had this on, so I watched the entire thing. Holy shit. I still can't handle the scenes with Zelda. Creepy AF. And the Achilles tendon? Hell no. I note myself out of the room before it happens with a laughing emoji. <laughs> yeah, that Achilles thing is, is bad. All right, Jesse Kraft commented, My dad took me to see this in the theaters when I was 11. Although he got many disapproving looks and rude comments from other moviegoers as to why a dad would take his kid to see this movie, it was one of my best childhood memories. My dad knew I much how much I loved horror and wanted to make me happy, and, and it did. I also read the book when I was 9 or 10. Thank you for reviewing one of the top five horror movies of all time. There is also a really great doc about the making of Pet Cemetery called Unearthed, Unearthed and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery. I'll have to check that out. I've, I've never heard of that. All right, new blood donor, M. Strickland, 91. Pumped for this review. A very nostalgic movie for me as well. Fred Gwynn really steals the show in all the scenes he's in. Gage's off-screen death was absolutely gut-wrenching. Out of the four dead that are brought back to life through the pet cemetery, which would be y'all's favorite? And then he says, my bad, five, including Judd's dog. My favorite, Gage. I love Gage scared the fuck out of me as a kid. Yeah, absolutely. Same. And I got to meet Miko Hughes. He needs to come on the damn show. <laughs> Leave it in. Leave it in. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's got to be. It's got to be Gage. Hell yeah, brother. Four for four. Shout out to Wendy's. Chris underscore twenty twenty. You like Wendy's? <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Wendy's nuts drag across your face. <laughs> Boom, got him. Got him. <laughs> got him. <laughs> My bad. All right, whatever. Uh, fuck you, Dustin. Uh, Chris <laughs> underscore. <laughs> Leave it in. <laughs> All right, Chris. Under, I don't know what the fuck's going on right now. Chris underscore twenty twenty comment. I have made it one of my life's goals to master Fred Gwynn's thick Maine dialect, as seen wonderfully portrayed by Judd in this movie. Man, man, image hearing an OxyClean commercial narrated by that voice, pure bliss. That would be cool, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck, Twitter, you son of a bitch. Okay, here we go. Let's do Twitter now. Uh, first comment we got is from Kevin Scanlon, uh, teammate of the show. This movie still holds up for me. Great choice, gents. Hernandez Gunn said, this is the first horror movie I ever watched when it came out. Scared me shitless. Man, okay. Uh, I'm just glad you it watched it. Ke- hey, I'm just glad Kevin watched it. Sorry. Yeah, I think he might need to get uh, more crap than me about this not watching movies thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, Randy uh, Smith. Let's not go that far. <laughs> let's, let's not go that far. Uh, Randy Smith comment, I love this movie. One of the best adaptations from the great Stephen King. Now it's no maximum overdrive, guilty pleasure, but it's yes. a solid eight out of ten. Hell yeah, Randy. Go, you know what? Just what for that, you get a go dogs. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Boo. Wrong <laughs> maximum overdrive. Get out of here, man. It's a great right. movie. <laughs> Andrew Ferguson commented, I did not walk into a room in the early nineties without checking all the corners to make sure Auntie Zelda wasn't going to run at me. Nightmare fuel. I feel like every, I feel like a lot of people th- felt like Zelda was the scariest part of this damn movie. Yeah, oh, yeah, dude. And the last comment that I had on my when I quoted it, uh, 
tweet at Joe's commented, my Achilles hurts just seeing the words Pet Cemetery. <laughs> yeah, I, I can understand that. That's fair. All right, guys, that's uh, that's the last of the social media. Uh, y'all want to do fun facts now? Sure. I got a couple. I'll, I'll go ahead and knock them out here. Um, Stephen King once mentioned that the only novel he wrote that really scared him was Pet Cemetery. So that's pretty cool insight in his fucked up mind. Um, the original cut of the film delivered to Paramount's executives was judged to be too long. So excess footage had to be removed. They also wow. decided that the closing scene was too tame. And at their request, it was reshot to be more graphic. Um, good, good call both on both accounts there. Uh, Stephen King is a big fan of the Ramones and referenced some of their songs in the novel Pet Cemetery. And in homage <clears throat> or homage, the Ramones wrote and performed the theme song Pet Cemetery, which is featured in the film's uh, closing credits. The truck driver was also listening to Sheena is a Punk Rocker by the Ramones. So that's pretty cool. It's the only two songs credited on the soundtrack. Um, <clears throat> Bruce Campbell, who we're going to be visiting one of his classic yeah. movies very soon. Bruce Campbell was actually the lead choice for the role of Lewis Creed. I think I think they made the right call, though. Yeah, um, and then this was the film debut for young actor Miko Hughes. He was only 31 to 33 months old uh, during production. Now, also in regards to him, he was, of course, in New Nightmare, which was written by Wes Craven, who directed Scream, which, you know, starred David Arquette. And the last one I've got is <laughs> <laughs> Tom Savini actually turned down the chance to direct this film. That was interesting. Tom Savini, that'd have been interesting. Yeah, um, actor Brad Grinquist said in an interview that while in his gruesome makeup for the role of Victor Pascal, that no one would sit near him uh, while the cast and crew were having lunch. I mean, I don't blame them on that one at all. Um, at 59 minutes and nine seconds, as the house goes up in flames, Timmy Baderman shouts, love dead, hate living. Uh, this is this is a line originally from Bride of Frankenstein, 1935, um, as spoken by Borlas Karloff. Um, Timmy repeats the line a minute or so later. Um, you mentioned Tom Savini. George A. Romero was originally also set to direct, uh, but when filming was delayed, he, he dropped out and uh, Mary Lambert stepped in. And the last thing I have is uh, the tree that Ellie Creed swings on after, you know, first arriving at their new home. Uh, made such an impression on Mary Lambert and Stephen King that they dug it up from a field where they spotted it and replanted it in front of the house. They had searched all summer for the perfect house with a tree and never found it, so they compromised. Okay. So I I brought some interesting numbers here, but just really quick, this movie had an $11.5 million budget and grossed worldwide at the box office when it was all said and done $89.5 million. It's good against your budget for sure. Compared to the remake, though, which grossed worldwide, it grossed one hundred thirteen point one million dollars. But in the U.S., just the U.S. and Canada, it grossed fifty four point seven million dollars. Compared to just the U.S. for the original fifty seven fifty seven million dollars. So about the same when you account for inflation. You know, they both kind of have. You know, they both kind of made what they made. I, I thought it was interesting because. You know, like a lot of you're, you're not alone in feeling that way. Uh, that's a lot of people didn't like that remake. A lot of people hated it actually, and said it should not have been made. So I did find it interesting. They kind of made the same amount of money in the long run if you account for inflation. All right, guys, let's jump into our favorite kill, least favorite kill in the rating. Who wants to kick us off this week? Uh, yeah, my 
my my favorite and least favorite kill are the same, and it's Gage. And it's it's my favorite because it's so impactful and it means so much to the story, but it's also my least favorite because no one wants to see an almost three-year-old die at the hands of a damn semi-truck. So uh, I feel like they're kind of one and the same to me. It's it's sad, but it's so important. I feel like it kind of has to be my favorite one of the movie. Because I don't really think any of the other ones are – like Judd is a good kill for sure, but, I mean, it's not like it's fantastic or anything. Um, yeah, so said what I had to say at the top. It's a good movie. It's not a great movie. It doesn't rank in my, like, list of classics as far as my brain goes. And to me, it's not something I'm going to revisit a ton. But it is good to throw on here and there. Again, I only watched it for the third time here recently in, in order to do the show. And it holds up okay. I, mean, I think Fred Gwynn is great. Some of the other acting is good. The effects are still good. But the story drags to me. And if they just switched a few things that they left in instead of kept out, I think it, you would have had a better film. All in all, I gave the movie a 7.25. Okay, I'll go ahead and go. So, I think this movie, like I said, I can't understate how important this movie was to my um, horror affinity. So, that being said, you know, all the things that I tore apart on the movie, yeah, I would do a lot of things differently, but I I still can't uh, ignore how influential this movie was to me. Um, As far as the kills go, I guess I almost skipped that. Favorite kill is Judd, just because of how brutal it was. Um, I thought we got some good good effects there um, with his throat and his uh, Achilles and all that being slashed. Like I thought it looked pretty good, so I went with Judd. Uh, least favorite kill was Missy, because what the fuck was the point of her character? Didn't care. Didn't move me. Stupid. Um, but anyway, I really would have liked to have seen Judd's character go a different direction. I would have liked to have seen um, Zelda who was the creepiest part of the movie as a kid, but um, Zelda and Pascal and Missy just not really exist in this movie. The score would be higher if that were the case, but um, it's a very important movie to me. So I went with a seven. Uh, Okay. So my favorite kill, I actually picked Judd just because I really liked how the effects looked. Um, My least favorite kill, I picked Rachel actually, just because it, was off screen. She was such an important character, and it just—I don't know—it didn't didn't resonate with me. Um, you know, I think I've really gotten you know into my feelings on the movie. I don't necessarily care for it that much, but there's a lot of really good in here. I mean, Fred Gwynn is master class in this to me, um, and the effects and and attempt at this really underlying theme of the movie with how everyone deals differently with you know with grief and death. Um, it does well enough for me that even though I don't necessarily care for it that much, I still gave it a six just for those two things. All right, favorite kill. I'm going with Judd as well. The the Achilles. Fuck, man. Biting his neck. It's just That's a brutal kill. I like yeah. it. Uh, and I think, you know, Judd scared the fuck out of me. Or not Judd. Uh, Gage scared the fuck out of me as a kid. <laughs> uh, least favorite kill. Contra- controversial, but... I, and it's also honestly a kind of a big nitpick. I'm going with Gage, dude. If a little kid gets hit by a fucking semi, there ain't gonna be nobody. He's gonna get dis- destroyed. Like I think that's a big plot hole. You know what I'm saying? Like y'all ever seen like a deer get hit <laughs> by a semi? That thing is exploded. So I feel like that's they they should have figured out a different way for Gage to be killed in this movie. That's just my opinion mm-hmm. on that. But the scene is impactful. I get it. 
Uh, things I really didn't care for, you know, Gage, when he jumped out of the root or the attic, didn't look good. I agree 100% with Dustin. How he, how did Gage get these kind of powers and lift his mom all the way up to the attic and all that? Like Brian mentioned earlier, uh, Dale Midkiff acting isn't that great, especially like, especially when you watch like the, uh, kill count and James breaks down like Fred Gwynn just, just delivering and then, and he just doesn't hold his end of the bargain up. But like Dustin, this movie is very nostalgic for me. It, it's very deep in the heart for me as well. And I still enjoy it, even with all of its flaws. I would give it a seven and a quarter as well. Okay. So that gives us a, a composite score of 6.875. IMDb has it as a 6.5. So pretty close. Yeah, we're close. Yeah, they're right this time. What can I say? <laughs> Any more uh, final thoughts, guys, for to shout out our blood donors and Dustin can announce his pick for next week? All right, let's do it. Thank you, blood donors. Really appreciate y'all. I can't stress it enough. Y'all take a big burden off of us this year, helping us pay these bills. Whew, it's rough out here, but we really appreciate y'all. Camper level reoccurring, Clayton J., Nina, Michelle Mirza, Andrew Ferguson, Carrie Adams, the Horror Movie Crew Podcast, Alex Seligson, Eric Doolittle, Sean Irwin, Brian Samick, and Gail Kuntz. Camp Counselor reoccurring are Hunter Nelson, Dennis Kennedy, Edwin Hernandez-Gunn, Joe Swinford, our hearts still go out to you, uh, Jennifer Davis from the Too Close to Home Podcast, Heather Smith, Kylie Denise, all the way from Australia, Adrian Aiello, Jake Hambrick, Clay Moore, and Karen. Legendary blood donor, Matt Strickland. Really appreciate you. Uh, appreciate your donation, brother. Uh, and final guy donor is Matt Sears. Oh, and shout out to Hunter Nelson. Hope you're doing better with uh, COVID. Uh, he had COVID this past week and couldn't attend the convention with me. Hope you're doing better, brother. Thank you again, blood donors. Dustin, you want to announce your pick for next week as we conclude overdue month? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this one is uh, <clears throat> extremely overdue. Um, honestly, very. I am surprised I, I that you guys didn't knock yeah, this one out right. um, before I joined the show. But uh, this movie, <laughs> <laughs> this movie uh, takes place about 30, 45 minutes up the road from where I live in East Tennessee uh, in the thriving metropolis of Morristown, Tennessee. I'm hey. talking about 1981's The Evil Dead. So excited to knock this one out. It is about time we did that, Bill. So, my grandma lived yeah, on Morristown for this about was, 20 This years. movie was one of those ones that was like a part of the vote for 100 when Exorcist won, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Was that yeah. one of the Yeah, my roommate, Haven, he always gives me hell about not seeing this movie, so he's excited. I'm finally about to watch it. Yeah, I mean, it's thank one of Brian's fans. favorites. Yeah, I've heard it's one of Brian's favorites. Yeah. What I've heard. Been a great I like Evil Dead 2 a lot. Been a great month, guys. <laughs> this has been a good month. Uh, hey, did, did anything happen? Did anything spooky happen in y'all's house after Emily Rose? Are we all good? We're not, I'm not talking about it. Anything else? All right, guys, y'all have yeah, a good one. Thank y'all. Up against the wall, like in scary movie too. She, <laughs> she grabbed my dick and twisted it. One, two, three, four. Twist Just want to remind everybody. Oh.